So we're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 30. You can be finding your spot there. Um, I was thinking this morning, we're, we're talking on the topic of obedience this morning, which is a good topic uh, with uh, parent-child uh, dedication today because, you know, that's one of the responsibilities we have as parents is to teach our children to obey. Um, it's one thing to convey information and say this is right or wrong. I'm finding it's another thing to get them to obey it, right? And uh, when we disciple people, the Bible tells us not just to teach them what Jesus said but to teach them to observe or to obey uh, what Jesus has said. And that's where the sticky part is in parenting and that's where the sticky part is in discipleship a lot of times is not just information. That's, that's the easy part, right? If you can read, you can get information. It's putting the information to use through obedience. But there is not really much more we can say than to say a, a critical component to your Christian life and to you experiencing the fullness of joy in the Christian life is obedience. Um, and when you walk in obedience, there's joy. When you don't walk in obedience... There's trouble, right? You don't experience that fullness of joy. And, um, and, and if you can, there's a problem. There's a, there's a massive problem if we can go in rebellion against God as people who claim to know God and there be no check in our spirit. There be no, there be no concern because ch- Christians are to be children of God and obedient children of that. So that what we're, that's what we're looking at this morning in Philippians. As we go through this book, I remind you every week that, that Paul wrote this from a prison. He is in jail uh, for his faith. And, but he writes it, and as you read through this book, the, the word joy just, and rejoice just keeps popping up like 14 times. Joy or rejoice pops up in this book. And the theme of joy bubbles over, which is unique because Paul is in a difficult spot, right? His circumstances is not what he'd have them to be, but yet he is joyful. And so as we go through this, we begin to see some of the, uh, the key elements of joy in his life. We know his joy is rooted in Christ, but as he lives his Christian life, uh, we have seen the role fellowship has played in his joy. We've seen the role... Uh, last week, that attitude uh, begins to play and having that attitude of humility as we saw last week uh, as we approach God, as we approach others. And this week, we're going to see the importance of obedience and how obedience plays a critical role in that. So look with me at Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 12. We're going to read all the way down through verse 30, so hang with me. If you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing to, for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed he was ill. 
near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So, Paul here, in writing to the Philippians, he is coming off the heels of the text we looked at last week when he begins to talk about uh, the example of Christ. Do you remember that? If you're here, it's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. After Paul has been urging them to live lives worthy of the gospel, to live as good citizens of the kingdom of heaven, basically is what that means, live life worthy of the gospel. And as he's urged them to walk in humility, and to walk in unity, and to put aside selfish ambition, and to put, put aside those kinds of attitudes... He says, here's the attitude you should have. And he gives them the example of Jesus who, who humbled himself and became a servant who gave his life on the cross and who was so obedient that he obeyed God to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's in light of that, in light of who Jesus is, and in light of his exaltation, that he is, is it his name that every knee will bow and tongue confess. In light of that, he says, therefore, and he goes into this, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, all this is in light of what he shared with Christ. And ultimately, it's, I would say it goes all the way back to the fact when he, when he begins to turn, when he says, live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so, the call on our lives to live obediently, the call on our lives in Philippians here in particular, their issue of obedience is one in particular, and it's unity in the church, and the fact that they have disunity in the church because of selfish ambition and conceit among some of the members. And so they're fighting and they're arguing and they're not getting along, and so it's producing disunity in the church, but that goes back to an individual problem in the hearts of individuals to where they feel like they need to win, right? And they feel like their ideas need to win, and they feel like they're always right, selfish ambition. And so he's, he's addressed that with them and said, no, you're supposed to live like this, and he's given them the picture of Jesus. And in light of all that, he says, now obey. Right? That's, that's weighty when you really allow it to sit and think about that he's painted this incredible picture, one of the richest pictures in all the New Testament of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. And he says, in light of that, in light of the one who obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross, you obey. He says, you've always obeyed. Right? They had a habit and a practice of obedience. He says, as you have always obeyed. So it was the habit of Philippi to be obeying God, to be obeying Christ. And he says, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. In other words, not just when I'm around, not just when it's convenient, right? There's no expiration date on obedience, right? We don't earn the right to sin a little bit. Or anything like that. It's not like, oh, we did good for a while and I get the weekend off. It's not like that, right? All the time, he says, whether he says whether the preacher's there or not, in his case, right? whether the apostle's there or not there, you've always obeyed. And now, you especially, I'm calling you to obey. Even though I'm in prison and it might be a while before I see you, I expect when I show up for these problems to be resolved, is what he's saying. You've always obeyed. Don't stop now, is what he's saying. And then he uses this phrase that's under, misunderstood by many, uh, but it's one of the more popular phrases in all of Philippians. Work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and with trembling. And now, what's he calling them to? As you've always obeyed. So what does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? It means to obey. Okay, you see the connection? It, he's calling the, as you've always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's, it's, it's synonymous with obedience. Now, notice, he says, work out your salvation. Not work for your salvation. 
A lot of people get this confused, but Paul is clear in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 in particular, that we're saved by grace through faith, and it's not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. So there's nothing you can do, there's no work you can do, there's no matter of keeping uh, obediently keeping the rules, so to speak, that you can do enough to save yourself, right? That's not what he's calling them to here. People get confused on that. One of the biggest problems that we see among religious people is the idea that you can earn your salvation one way, one, in some way. And that's a major misconception. There's nothing you can do to contribute to the salvation of your soul. You simply believe. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that even that is a gift from God. That apart from His grace and His Spirit working in your heart, you wouldn't even believe. And so, he says, listen, I want you to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. So he's not talking about you earning your salvation. So what's he saying? Well, the Bible speaks of salvation in three tenses. We always say around here, all right? It, you was saved, you're being saved, you will be saved. He's speaking here of the middle one more. He's talking about sanctification. You have to remember, salvation's holistic. And if you're a believer this morning, there's a sense in which you're saved, right? Your eternity is secure. You're, you've trusted in Christ and His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And He has saved you. And that is, man, it is done. That is stamped. Your name is in the Lamb's book of life. If you've genuinely repented and trusted Christ, you are saved. And there's a sense, though, in which that there's a finality that's yet to come in the sense that you will ultimately be saved one day from the presence of sin, from the power of sin completely. You won't be tempted to sin. You won't... You, you won't sin. There's coming a day in glory when that will happen. But you don't experience that in this life. In the meantime, we're going through something of being saved, growing and maturing and becoming like Christ. Right? It's a painful process at times. It can be a slow process at times. We have our share of setbacks, obviously. But after we come to faith in Christ, the rest of life's journey from then until glory is a journey of growing and maturing and becoming like Christ. That's what I believe he's speaking of. You're working out your salvation, obedience, sanctification. Your sanctification is about you learning to obey Christ and learning to put his word to work in your life and apply it to your life. The Greek here of work out uh, means to produce or bring about. So it is a call to effort. He's calling us to strive. He's calling us to do this, though, with fear and trembling. You see that? Do it with fear and trembling. Those aren't popular words in the church today. You're not supposed to fear and do stuff with fear and trembling. Those are, those are bad words, right? We want happy, sing happy songs and do happy things. But here he says, you need to obey. You need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Knowing your heart. Knowing your shortcomings, knowing your capability of disobedience and capability of falling aside with seriousness and solemnness we strive to obey. Why? For God's at work in us. But God's at work in us. So it produces a reverence and an awe for God as we go about because we realize this obedience that's produced in our life is only produced because God's at work in you. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. The Greek word for work is energeo. E-N-E-R-G-O. Any idea what English word we get from that? Energy. So what, here's what he's saying. He's saying. It's God that gives you the energy. You say, how do I go about working out my salvation with spirit, fear and trembling? How am I ever going to learn to obey? How am I ever going to learn and get past this? How am I ever going to conquer these sinful habits in my life and grow and mature and ever become anything more like Jesus? Because God is going to give you the spiritual energy by the power of His Holy Spirit to grow and mature. He's working in you. And the only way you can work out your salvation is if God is working in you. You can't work out what God's worked in, not worked in. You understand that? You, you know what, that, you'll give up, you'll, you'll tire, you'll, go, you'll become legalistic. 
That happens, right? You'll get nice, big, long list of things that you're trying to do to prove that God's at work in you. And the reason you have such a list and the reason it crushes you when you can't obey the list is because God's probably not in work on the inside. So you're doing all you can on the outside to try to change the inside. That's not how it works. He says the only way you can work it out, the only way you can learn to grow in obedience is if God is working in. And listen, just as you can't work out what God's not worked in, you can't keep in what God's worked in. If He works it, if He's working in you, it will work its way out. You understand that? We, there's no such thing as Christians who just don't obey God. There's no such thing. They're Christians absolutely disobey God. But when the characteristic of our life is rebellion against God, they're, they're, that's someone that needs to be saved, generally speaking. Right? When it's just an overwhelming pattern of our life, it's just, woo, you know, going... That, no, we're, we're called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We're going to have our shortcomings. We're going to have our failures. You're, you have a season of sin. In your life. I get all that. Talk about general patterns as you look back over your life. And there's some of you, you could look back over your life and you could say, I really struggled here and I really struggled there. But as you grow and as you mature in a Christian, you kind of, you look back and you go, man, I'm not the person I was at 15. I'm not the person I was at 25. I'm not the person I was at 35. I'm not the person I was at 55. It is, you look back over your life and you see growth. And sometimes when you're in the moment though, when you're in the season, it doesn't feel like you're growing at all. It feels very slow depending on the season, depending on what's going on in your life. But be sure, God will work out, because God, God is working in you. So it will ultimately, over time, He will begin to make you more like Christ. Now, you're not going to perfectly achieve it. But it should cause us alarm if we look back over our life and we're 50 years old and we look back and we say we came to Christ and we were 8 years old and we're no more like, no more spiritual growth, no maturity. We're just sitting around like knots on a log and we're not any, no spiritual progress, no hunger and desire to know the truth. That should alarm us. That should concern us. Because that rubs against what the Bible teaches us about conversion and about salvation. Paul's calling us to work this out. He's calling us to obedience. This is a call to leave spiritual laziness and apathy aside. He is calling us to exert some energy here, right? To work it out, but it's with the energy that God gives us. Jesus said it this way. I am the vine, you are the branches, and apart from me you can do nothing. You can't do anything apart from Him. And that's another kind of a, a... a gospel of John, Jesus' is teaching version of this verse in a way. It's, it's Jesus. We're, we connect to Jesus and He empowers us to walk and to grow into material. So this is what I want you to understand. This is the first kind of little takeaway is this. Obedience is a miracle. This is the miracle of obedience. Because the only way you'll obey, the only way you'll work out is if God has worked, is working in you. And that's a miracle. We, we are prone to disobedience. That's natural. That's why we still fail and that's why we still disobey after we come to know God. I mean, it's just we're just so bent that direction and we live in a fallen world. And it takes a supernatural miracle of God to change our heart and to make us want to come to God and to obey God and to walk with God. And we still fail and we still mess up and God still has to discipline us. I get all that. But you need to understand, it's, it's all a miracle. The initial turning to God at salvation and the continual progress in the faith, that is a miracle of God. It's a miracle. And it's an... People don't get down about miracles. You understand that? When somebody gets healed or somebody gets saved or something, something miraculous happens, people don't go, a miracle happened to church today. You know, I mean, maybe some people would. I don't know. I hope not. You know, we don't do that, right? 
And so we shouldn't look at obedience in our life as like some drudgery or like some non-joyous things like, you know, well, I, you know, I want to do this, but God's word tells me to do this. It's a miracle that you even want to obey. And so it's, there's joy in obedience. And there's a lack of joy when we don't obey. But it's a spirit-empowered, spirit-energized obedience. And it's a miracle of God. But it's not just a miracle. Our obedience is a witness. It's a witness. Look at verse 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. It's a witness. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He says, you need to do everything without grumbling or disputing. For the Philippians... This was an issue, right? He's, calling, he's going back to their root issue, the grumblings and the disputings that they were having. And they were to avoid this by per- obeying God and pursuing humility and pursuing running away from their selfish ambition and embracing the mind of Christ. They had people, though, in their midst who were selfish. They might have been saved. I'm not saying they weren't Christians, but they were struggling with selfishness. And Christians do that. We do that from time to time. And this was producing all sorts of disobedience and problems in their life. And he's saying, you need to be striving to obey God. You need to be striving to humble yourself. You need to be striving to put that off and to put on the new man who you are in Christ. Put away the grumbling and disputing. And the phrase is actually an Old Testament reference. This whole phrase, this whole verse really, of the grumblings and the disputings, and then you get into the uh, crooked and twisted generation. All this is tied back back to the wilderness generation, the Jewish generation, after they left Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness. And they get very unhappy, right? You remember this? If you're familiar with the story, they don't like it. They don't, they don't, you know, they, they, they're wandering and wandering and wandering. And they don't like that they're still wandering. And they don't like th- this to eat. And they don't like this to drink. And there's not water here. And there's not this. And they're just constantly complaining and murmuring. Wish we'd never left Egypt, is what they say. We should just stayed in Egypt. I mean, we were slaves, but at least we were eating good, right? And they're very angry. And they turn that anger towards Moses. They're very angry at Moses. And in their grumbling and their mumbling and their disputing against Moses, we find out something if you go back and read the story, is that God basically lets it know. God tells Moses, he said, they're really angry at me. They were, their anger towards Moses was really anger at God. But Moses was, in a sense, like God's representative. He was, he was the leader, and he was the one that God was giving them the word through and all that sort of stuff. And so they looked and they blamed Moses when really they're just angry at God. And we need to understand something. Many times... Problems with God manifest themselves in our relationships with others. Sometimes our grumbling and our murmuring against others is a symptom of a disconnect between us and the Lord and disobedience to the Lord. This is especially true in spiritual leadership in the church, I believe. And I believe it's very possible that in Philippi that that's weren't part of the grumbling and disputing. It's possible, we can't say for sure, that was going against church leadership. That might be why he addresses the pastors and the deacons at the very beginning of the book. I don't know. But what we do know is this. You can look throughout the Bible and you see it. Many times, problems with God manifest themselves with problems with others. And we know God calls us to put aside the grumbling and the murmuring. See, this obedience of action and and really of attitude, since they weren't to grumble or murmur, was was important not only for their own spiritual growth, but it was because their witness was on the line. Do you see that? You shine as lights in the world. You're to, be, you're to be blameless and innocent and without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Their witness is on the line. 
The words blameless, innocent, without blemish. These are words speaking to moral uprightness, character. The idea is that they were to have a complete character. They were to live blameless lives so that they could be witnesses that they were called to be. This was in contrast to the Old Testament story that he's applying it to. In Deuteronomy 32.5, listen to what it said. Talking about that generation. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children. This is talking about their relationship with God. Because they are blemished, they are crooked and a twisted generation. So in the Old Testament passage, it's applied to Israel. They had become, this generation of Israel had become a crooked and twisted generation and they were blemished. Here, Paul takes that Old Testament analogy and he goes it over here to the New Testament and he says, now you live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Talking about the world as a whole. The world system and the lostness of this world. And you're to be blameless. You're to be pure, innocent, without blemish. You're to live differently. In Philippians, it's not the Philippians that's the, it's crooked and twisted. It's, it's the world. The point is that people shouldn't be pointing at our lives and saying, now you call yourself a Christian, but... That's, that's boil it all down. This is what he's talking about. Crooked, blank, it twisted generation. You're to shine as light, so you're, not to, you're supposed to be blameless, innocent, without blemish. In other words, there's not supposed to be things in your life that they point at and look at and they go, now, you invited me to church, but... You call me, you call yourself a Christian, but... And they look at the habits and the lifestyle that you live, and it doesn't sync with who you say you are. That's what he's addressing here. But notice the terms crooked and twisted generation. Every generation since the fall is a crooked and twisted generation. Every generation. And, And I think it's interesting that he uses a verse where in the Old Testament God applied it to Israel, but here he applies it to the world. And I think in a way he's alluding them to the danger of becoming worldly. Make sure you're not acting like the crooked and twisted generation like Israel did. Those that came before you messed this up. So he's saying, you need to be careful. You need to be wary. As the Bible says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not become, do not be conformed to this world. I think there's an implicit warning here in the text. But the word crooked there is the Greek word scolios. We think of our word Scoliosis, right? It's, it's crooked. It's, it's, here's the standard. Here's what it's supposed to be, but here's what you have. And he says, that's what this generation is like. There's a moral straightness through God's word that there is supposed to be, but there's a crookedness. It's, it's deviated from the standard. And so, the world resists the straightness and the morality, if you will, even, of God's word. Because you take that word and you, and you press it down and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. That's why we need the miracle of conversion, the miracle of life change. We wouldn't obey is because we're crooked. Everything's crooked. You know, I think about it when, when I was a kid. I spent like five years in braces. You may, you may braces people, right? I had braces from like seventh grade through into high school. Five years. And, 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 and here's what I learned. They tell you to wear this retainer after it's all over. You're supposed to wear this retainer. I don't know if you know what a retainer is. I think everybody knows what that is. It's the grossest invention in the history of the world. Um, you put this thing in your mouth and you take it out. And every night you put it in your mouth and you put it in your mouth and you put it in your mouth. And I wasn't very disciplined with the retainer in, in those late teen years when I, when I was supposed to wear it. And what I noticed is when I would go back to put that thing in after I had not put it in all week, it hurt. And if I waited a month, 
or two months and I go back to put that thing in, over time, it's like it doesn't fit. What's happening? Well, my teeth are becoming crooked. If I was to find it now and try to put it in, oh, have mercy. You know, y'all would have to, I would have to go have my jaw broke or something to get it removed probably. It's been so long. But here's the thing. It, it, wouldn't, it doesn't fit, right? Because it, it, they said, okay, here's straight. Here's what it's supposed to be like. And here's your teeth. And we want to keep them straight. But if they turn ever so slightly, if they get crooked, right, it there's pain, there's a resistance, and that's what the world is like. It is resisting the moral straight way of God's Word because it's a crooked generation. But not only that, it's a twisted generation. Some translations say a perverted generation. In the Greek, this is a little different word because this is an active turning away from the standard. It's one thing to be crooked, it's another thing to be perverse. Crooked is kind of like, okay, this is bent, it's broken. Perverse is like it continues to want to be bent and broken. It just keeps turning away. It just keeps pushing away. So he says it's crooked and it's twisted. I mean, it's it just continues to bend away from God, and we see that in our culture. We see that in our in, in, in the lives of people. Just this perverseness, and that's why we need that miracle of conversion, God to work in us, so that we can work out our salvation. But at conversion, God gives us a new heart, right? And he changes us from the inside out. And now we're not to just know the gospel and be saved. We are to show people what it looks like to not be crooked and to not be twisted. So we must live innocent and blameless lives without blemish. So that we can show them the right way. We're the people that are supposed to be reconciled to God. And now we pursue his design and everything. Even though this world runs from God's design and everything. We're to show it and to model it for the world. What life is supposed to look like. Because Jesus said, or the Bible says here, Paul says, we shine as lights in the world. Or as Jesus said, you are the light of the world. His commentator, Moises Silva, put it this way. The most basic New Testament incentive to holy living is an emphasis on what you already are. What he's saying. He doesn't say, you need to try to shine as lights in the world. He says, you do shine as lights in the world. Jesus didn't say you need to be the light of the world. Jesus said you are the light of the world. Do you understand that? (laughs) And throughout the New Testament, what you see is God calling us, Christ calling us to our identity, who He says we are. It, It always starts there. It doesn't just start with do this, do this. It starts with you are this. This is who you are. You are the light of the world. Therefore, let your light shine. Listen to what Jesus said. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a lamp uh, in, under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What's the point of our works? That they will give glory to our Father in heaven. But Jesus says, you are the light of the world, therefore let your light shine, right? So we sing little songs about it, and all that kind of stuff. But there is an incredible truth that we have to learn in that. And that is identity and living your identity out. And when you obey Christ and you obey His commands and you allow your life to be conformed to His Word and not this world, that's what it means to let your light shine through your deeds and through your actions. You point others to Christ. You are living out your identity. You don't have to conjure up being the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You say, well, I thought Jesus is the light of the world. Well, He is the light of the world. Jesus said that. I'm the light of the world. And He also said, you're the light of the world. So how does that work? Well, when you go outside at night and you look up at the moon, do you see light? Is that light coming from the moon? Yes and no, right? It is. From our perspective, it's coming from the moon. But where does it really come from? It's reflecting the light of the sun, right? And so it's just reflecting. 
And that's what we do. We are reflecting the light of Christ. Our light is not our own. It's light that Christ gives us. And we're like moon. We're like the moon in the galaxy, so to speak, in the way that we reflect the light of Christ to the world. And he says, so we're to hold fast to the word of life. Now, that phrase can mean, in the Greek, it can mean to hold it out, or it can mean like to, to hold fast to it. So in one sense, it can mean evangelism, right? You're to hold out the word of Christ. You're to hold out the good news of the gospel. Or another thing, it can mean faithfulness and keeping it and walking in obedience. In context, I think that fits better. But both are true. We are to be a people who hold to God's word and obey God's word. And we are to be the people that extend God's gospel to the world. We have to do both. Paul says he wants them to do this so that he can be proud at the day of Christ. He wants to boast in what God has done in their life. And he wants them as they stand. He's reminding them, hey, you're going to stand in front of Christ. And don't you want to stand in front of Christ unashamed, without blemish, knowing that you've strived to live your life in obedience to Him? You stand in what Christ has done for you, but we, we, we do stand and give an account for our lives. And so, here's the thing. We face two temptations in this. One is surrender, and the other is retreat. Surrender is to become like the world. To allow the crooked and twisted ways of the world to shape our views, to shape our lifestyle, to shape our choices and our families. It's to become in the world and of the world. The other is to retreat, to run away from the world, to try and be neither of the world nor in the world. It's to sit on the sidelines and not engage the lost out of fear, to completely disengage from culture, shut everything down, live in a bunker, get enough food to last, right? This world's gone. It's gone. I'm just going to go off somewhere and just be by myself and live on an island and live the way I want to live. Both are wrong. One is obviously ungodly. The other one looks spiritual, but is still ungodly. Jesus has called us to live in the world, but not be of the world. He says you shine as light among the, you shine among them, in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Those words are in there for a reason. We're to be in their midst and we're to shine among. Listen to what Jesus said in John 17. I do not ask, this is Jesus' prayer to the Father before He goes to the cross. John 17, 15 through 18. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Do you see that? He said, I don't don't want them removed. I want you to protect them. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. In other words, we're here on purpose. Do you You say, man, this country, this culture has gotten more and more ungodly. Do you know you're here on purpose? Do you understand that? The Bible actually teaches God determines where you live and everything. It says that in Acts. He he determines the boundaries of our dwelling place. You live in Orlando, Florida in the year 2015 by the design of the sovereign hand of God. He said, what if God moves me? That's right, God can move you. But God has you where you're at for a particular reason, for a particular purpose. You say, well, I don't, you know, the world was a better place 20 years ago. The world was a better place 50 years ago. Every generation's probably said something like that. You're responsible for how you steward the grace of God in your life in this generation. You're not called to live Paul's life or Peter's life. You're not called to live, you know, your grandparents' life or your parents' life. You're called to live your life for Christ in this generation and whatever comes with that. Not to surrender, not to retreat. You know, I think when I think, you know, whether whether we act like we're the light of the world doesn't change the fact that we are. You know, when you when you go outside at night, 
you know, I used to love to go outside at night when I was a kid, look at the stars and try to find all the, you know, Orion and the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper. And I was horrible at it, right? I could always just find the Dipper. That's the only thing. And I wasn't sure if it was the big one or the little one. It looked big to me, you know? Um, and so, which, you know, I, I wasn't, but I like doing it. But, you know, you, you can't do it when it's cloudy. It's like, so we use the phrase, well, the star, there's no stars out tonight. Oh, they're out. You just can't see them. Right? That there's cloud cover. That's the only thing that's changed. Nothing has changed about the stars. They're right where they were on that clear night. The only thing that's changed is there's clouds blocking the sky. So what we have to understand, in the same way, you are the light of the world if you're a child of God. And it's our responsibility to give everybody a clear night. To keep the clouds away, so to speak. You control the weather in this illustration. You understand? <laughs> It's, it's our responsibility to live in such a way that people see the light of Christ shining in us and shining through us. Because we are the light of the world. So how we handle situations, how we conduct our relationships, how we work, how we manage our finances, how we treat people, how we talk to one another. All these are ways that we either shine as lights or we provide overcast. It's up to us. There's no greater joy, right, than seeing people come to know Jesus. And there's no better tool outside of the gospel than your personal lifestyle of living the Christ life in front of them. And that's why I believe he gives us incredible examples of people that lived it here at the end. We've dealt with these verses before a couple of years ago. Great examples of Paul, of Timothy, and a guy named Epaphroditus. And this is the, we see these examples of the life of obedience here in verses 17 through 30. First you see Paul's example. See, he's ultimately, Paul's calling the Philippians to obedience. But obedience for them, where they were really struggling, was that they were not um, walking humbly, as we said, and living in unity. And they, they weren't serving hard enough. That's what he's kind of been addressing with them. So for them, when he says obey... He means in everything, but he's particularly talking about the area where they're not being obedient, right? And for you, that might be something different this morning. It can be a host of things. But for them, it was this. And so he gives them examples that go with that. Examples of people who are living that. And it wasn't so much that he was purposely doing that. He's kind of giving his ministry rundown. Here's what's going on with me. Here's who's coming back. Here's why I'm not sending Timothy. But in so doing, he paints this picture of examples. And he even uses some words that tie back to things he's already commended to them. And the first example is himself. And from the example of Paul, we learned that as obedient children, we're to live joyful lives. He says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you. He says, I'm pouring out my life in service for, for your sake and for the glory of God, and I rejoice in that. If I die giving my life away for your good and for God's glory, I rejoice in that as I do it. That's what he's saying. He says, like, and he also talks about their lives are sacrificial offerings. And he says, and likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He's calling them to the same, follow my pattern, rejoice with me, live your life this way. As you're doing, continue in that. And let's joyously give our lives away, is what Paul is saying. And then the example of Timothy there in verses 19 through 24. And from Timothy, we learn the importance of living a genuine life. Obedience should be genuine. We should be genuine. He says, "I hope to send Timothy to you. I have no one, but because so that I too may be cheered by news of you. I want to send Timothy, and I want to hear back of how great you're doing." But he says, "I have no one else like him who's genuinely concerned for your welfare." Isn't that sad? He's in he's in prison. He said, "I don't have access to anyone. Nobody else is quite like Timothy. He's unique. And he's, here's where he's unique. 
Here's, here's where he's like-minded or like-souled with me. Here's where we're kindred spirits. He's genuinely concerned about you. He's not putting on airs. He's not faking it till he makes it. He loves you people. And he's genuinely concerned about your welfare. The word there for concern over in chapter 4, verse 6 that we're going to get to in a few weeks is translated anxious over there. So it's a concern. It's an angst for the well-being of others. He genuinely cared about them more than... He, was, he wasn't just self-interested. He said other people, they're self-interested not caring about the interest of Christ, not Timothy. Kim, Timothy was concerned about the interest of Christ. You say, well, how do you know he was really that way and that he wasn't just faking that, you know? Because Paul says he's proved himself. He said he's proven worthy. He said he served with me in the gospel over the years and I've seen it bared in his life over time. That word proven worthy means tested value, like a coin being tested to prove its genuineness. He says he's genuine and I know he's genuine because I've seen it over time. Listen, character's not made in a moment. Character's not made with one moment's decision. Character's not made in five minutes. Character is made over the course of time making choices. And sometimes we make choices that hurt our character and we have to start over. And we rebuild our character. Character is proven out through consistently following Christ. And that was Timothy. He was proving, proving, proving his character. And then you've got Epaphroditus who leveraged his life literally for the advancement of the gospel. You see that in verses 25 through 30 there. He says, see, Epaphroditus here had, he had been sent to Paul from the Philippians probably to bring the gift, the offering that they had given to Paul. And so he's carrying out this missionary journey, but from what we can tell, it seems he got sick in the journey and almost died. And somehow Philippi had got word back that he had gotten sick. So they didn't know if he was dead. They didn't know if he got to finish the journey. They didn't know what had happened. But somehow word had been sent back. He had gotten sick on the journey, and he was near to death, Paul says. And so Paul's sending him back here. Notice he uses the term fellow soldier, your messenger, fellow worker, minister to my need. What's he doing? He's tying Epaphroditus to himself. He don't want Epaphroditus going back to Philippi and them thinking, you couldn't get the job done. What, did you get a cold? You know? You know? But like, just looking at him like, you're a quitter. No, he wants him to realize, no, he's not a quitter. He got sick. He almost died doing what you needed him to do. Finishing your service to me. He, he put his life on the line to serve me and to help advance the gospel. He's a fellow worker. He's a partner in the gospel. He's a fellow soldier. And he is your messenger. And he's ministered to my need. You know, the name Epaphroditus, and that, it was common in that day. Isn't that funny? You know, it's like John today or, or something like that. Bob. You know, we got a lot of Bobs. We got, you know, um, Epaphroditus is a very common name in that day. And so I just, it's humorous to me, but it meant favorite of Aphrodite, right? The goddess. She was the goddess of love and beauty, but she was also the goddess that was called on in gambling. And so when men would get around and they would gamble, they would call out Epaphroditus because it meant... Aphrodite, I want you to show me favor. Calling on the favor of this goddess. And so Paul says, he uses this term that was very combling. And, you know, they would like this is the term you would hear people shouting if you went into casinos at Vegas, right? In their time. It would have just been Epaphroditus, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. And he's referencing that because he said he risked his life. He gambled with his life. He put his life on the line. There's all kinds of wordplay going on here. That this guy with this name Epaphrodite, Paul could have said it a lot of ways, but he said it in a way in their language that they would have understood that just like his name brings up the idea of gambling and wastefulness, he gambled, he risked, he didn't waste, he invested, he put it all on the line for the sake of the gospel. 
He risked everything. He says, risked his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And see, we spend our life avoiding risk, right? It's unnatural to risk. I've talked about that. I mean, it's, it's unnatural. I'm the guy, I go to the parks, I want, you know, you want to ride this? Well, where's the end? Where's the middle? What does it look like? Is there a map? Is there something? Can I, can I experience this on YouTube before I get on? I avoid risk, right? We go, we go to uh, Aquatica, to the, to, the, to the water slides. I'm checking, is this a water slide or a waterfall? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> not getting duped. I'm not getting up there at the top and it's like free fall for 40 feet and two feet of water. I don't need that. I avoid risk, right? I have life insurance, Okay? And so, that's, when that's what we do to a certain degree, to, we're all about minimizing risk. We get education, we get insurance, we do all these things so that we can get a job, so that something happens, we've got money. We put away for retirement. All this is minimizing risk. But he says, Epaphroditus, he risked everything. See, I get that. There's, there's risk we've got to manage and risk we've got to minimize in order to be good stewards for our families and for the sake of the gospel. But when it comes to our lives, we are called to risk everything. For the sake of the gospel. Listen, o- obedience does involve risk. For Epaphroditus, that meant his life ended up being put on. He went on in their day, an 800-mile journey uh, was a big deal. But for him to be obedient and, and his calling that God had called him to and to go out from his church and to go and to serve Paul in this way, it ended up costing him nearly his life, but God gave him mercy. But there's risk. Don't assume, don't assume that obeying God will never cost you anything. It cost Jesus everything. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Yes, obedience can be costly. But we're to strive for it. And whether that applies in our careers or in our finances or in how we manage comfort and safety, we need to be willing to realize sometimes we might lose a job. Sometimes we might lose money. Sometimes we won't have as much. Sometimes we will lose some comfort. Sometimes we will lack safety, possibly. Who knows what God will call us to do, but our call is to obey. What we see in these examples, that these are real people living their lives like Paul was calling the Philippians to do. And it was his way, in a way, of reminding them. And it shows us, when we see examples like this, of somebody joyfully obeying God, somebody genuinely living their life, for God and obedience. Somebody risking everything in their obedience to God. What we begin to see this and we see it in everyday lives as we go, you know, it's one thing to look at Jesus and go, well, Jesus obeyed God perfectly. And we go, and he was, he's God. You know, I'm not God, right? We throw that card up and it's kind of like, okay, well, we can't obey God perfectly, but here's Epaphroditus, here's Timothy, here's Paul. And there's like a list of people who they're obeying God in their context and being who God's called them to be. And it's empowering for us to look and to see examples. That's why Paul sometimes would say, follow me. As I follow Christ, you say, follow and pattern your life after me. We, we live in the world that wants to say, don't look at me, look at Jesus. And as a general concept, that's true. But if, as an excuse and as a flag to throw out so we can live how we want to, it's wrong. Because the example of the Bible is we're to live in another way. We're supposed to live in such a way that we can say, look, as I follow Christ, let me show you how to follow Christ. That's what discipleship is. It's not just room, sitting in a room and teaching some things. It's living it out in front of people. And we need that. It empowers us to live obedient lives. Now, here's the question. Are you walking in obedience to Christ this morning? Are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? It has the miracle taken place in your life, first of all? But are, are, you, are you living out your faith in Christ? Are there areas of disobedience in your life? Areas where you're not vigorously trying to obey God that have been touched on maybe this morning? Is your witness compromised because of it? Maybe this morning you need to do business with God.